0: Radio with Erica Spiegelman, addiction and wellness specialist, motivational speaker and author, helping individuals, couples and families regain a sense of control, leading to personal growth, wellness and a more fulfilling life. Here's Erica Spiegelman.
1: Welcome everyone. Many people think that someone suffering from addiction must hit a rock bottom to be truly ready to get better. My guest today, Stephen Flighter, believes that this notion is flat out false and is an unfortunate myth that keeps many people stuck in negative and potentially life-threatening situations. Stephen is a certified interventionist, addiction specialist, recovery coach, and founder of San Francisco Intervention, which integrates cognitive behavioral therapy concepts into its treatment services. Stephen's here today and will share with us his personal journey that he took to become an interventionist and how he helped Clients live full, healthy, and productive lives. Stephen, welcome to the show. So happy to have you with me today.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on, Erica.
1: Uh, so let's. I, you know, I was talking yesterday about rock bottoms and bottoms in general, and and really, there's there's external bottoms like you know DUIs and getting fired from your job and a relationship ending, and then there's also so many internal bottoms, which personally I feel like a lot of people relate to, I do too, of, of just hopelessness and feeling like, you know, your life's falling apart and that, that kind of like endless, endless spiritlessness that we feel sometimes when we're in these behaviors, um, and stuck in them. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about your opinion on bottoms and really when it's, when people should, you know, get help?
0: Yeah, it's a really uh, interesting concept, and you know, it can be a, a positive um, to kind of hit a so-called bottom. Which a bottom can be different for every person. So um, I've gone into you know detox centers um, all around the country, and there are people that are on their deathbed, for example, and you know they're dying of a substance use disorder, and they just are not capable of connecting the dots. That they're so close to the bitter end, and they mm-hmm. haven't so-called hit that internal bottom that you speak of. And then for me, um, I uh, ended up getting uh, into recovery when I was 21, a little over 10 years ago. And Amazing. for me, what happened was I, you know, embarrassed my family at a wedding. I was, you know, you know, drinking excessively in college, and you know, really pushing the edge. And it just kind of something clicked. And um, I don't know if you'd call that a bottom or a high bottom or whatever. It's just a A place where I was open to trying something different. And that's what I kind of see um, as the necessary ingredient for someone to, you know, change their life is to be willing to explore something different. And, you know, that's my job as an interventionist and a coach is to kind of bring that moment to happen for individuals and family members. Um, So the danger, obviously, with rock bottom is for some people, that could be the bitter end and, and actually dying or I got yeah. a call. It comes fresh to my mind that, you know, I, I had a call where he said, let's wait to do an intervention and see what happens. And I get nervous when people say, let's just see what happens and hope things get better. And in, in some some mm-hmm. situations they do, but in this case, it was where I got a call and, and the person had been in a tragic accident and ended up in a coma because mm. they just wanted to see, you know, what was, how things were going to fall over, waiting for things to, you know, get worse or something like that, or someone to have a uh, like a, a moment of clarity, and that was that didn't happen because the person ended up, you know, being in a tragic accident and getting in a coma, and uh, those are the, the dangers of kind of this myth of waiting to hit rock bottom, um, but I do agree with you 100% that, you know, there has to be some kind of switch that's flipped to have that motivation to be willing to just explore and be open to trying something different, um, Yeah, and that's, that's the, the real the real ingredient
1: for change. Right. Is that internal, that internal switch, as you call it, or that higher, higher self or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. it, it could be felt for all of us in different ways. But I just, you know, as you're speaking, I was just thinking that how many times I've heard clients say, well, that hasn't happened to me yet. You know, and and the minute they say that, that makes me really nervous, too, because I've been doing this so long as you, you know, as you have, and you've been familiar with recovery and I'm in recovery, just that, that yet is actually right around the corner. You know, these, these things that haven't, oh, I haven't lost my job yet, or I haven't, you know, gotten in trouble with the law yet. And then, you know, I, I see people that come back to, to the centers I've worked at over and over again with, with more and more consequences, negative consequences in their lives until, you know, it's like, what, when, when, and what do you need to happen to actually start to make some changes because, you know, all these things will happen to people. I mean, I can guarantee it almost, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's what I've seen in my experience. And it's, it's heartbreaking to watch people, you know, end up kind of continuing to pursue, you know, that lifestyle, the party lifestyle. And just, you know, this, this bad event hasn't happened yet. And I'm going to wait for something, you know, more tragic to happen. And mm-hmm. seeing people go in and out of, you know, treatment and, and uh, into jail or having accidents or ending up in the hospital or, you know, all kinds of, you know, chaos that's created for the, the individual as well as the loved ones around them. Mm-hmm. And um, I completely relate to that line of thinking. I remember, you know, when, before I entered, entered recovery, I had a, you know, a nice apartment and uh, I was living in Baltimore. You know, I was in in college. I was doing well. I had good grades. So I was getting by and, you know, I thought in my mind I, everything I had arrived. Mm-hmm. friend had you know the grease i had the you know um all the outwardly success on the inside i was dying and i remember i was watching the show intervention at the time and i was sitting there just pounding pounding drinks and going look at these people running out of running Mm -hmm. out of trailers and you know look at these these are the people with the real problem and now just come full circle that i do this work for a living doing interventions and You know, seeing that, oh, I'm not that bad yet, you know, I'll just, you know, look at that guy over there under the bridge. And I think that that is part of the the resistance that I see to so many people, um, you know, exploring uh, changing to kind of get that gift of a a different lifestyle that that, so many people on some level are really hoping and wanting, um, but don't know how to get it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just, you know, but you comparing yourself to them, which a lot of people compare, you know, and, and I hear that, too. It just perpetuates the denial that we're in. You know, it's that voice that is just like, no, not not yet. I'm not that bad. You know, so I, I'm glad we're speaking to this because I think people that listen um to the show can relate to, to these kinds of, uh, experiences in their lives. So Steven, tell me a little bit about, so if somebody is out there listening and wants to do an intervention for one of their family members, what is the first thing that, that, that they should do to kind of get themselves ready? I always say to reach out to professional because honestly, um, I think, you as a certified interventionist know best on how to guide the family depending on the circumstances. You know, sometimes these family members live in the house with them. Sometimes they haven't heard from them, you know, in weeks or months. But I I always get calls um, kind of ask you know, people asking me what what should I do first? I don't know how to help this person. And even if it's not an intervention, is there any advice you could give everybody of, of how to first bridge the conversation? Like, do you need help? I love you. I, I can't watch you live like this. Is there anything you know when I wrote my book Rewired, I, I know a lot of my, my publishers were like, Well what what you know when I wrote a chapter about families, they kept asking me like what like what are your common what are the common questions? And I feel like that's a common question I hear all the time. How can I how can I bridge this conversation?
0: Exactly. And, you know, it's a great question. I just was on a, um, you know, conference uh, coaching session with the family, getting ready to do and preparing to to have that conversation with a loved one. And what I tell people that, you know, they're feeling stuck, they're feeling hopeless, they're feeling frustrated, you know, they've kind of tried many things and and are kind of feeling trapped and really wanting to change. And their loved one who might be in the throes of a, a, a destructive addiction, um, you know, is not ready for that change. So it creates this real um, unhealthy, challenging dynamic, um, especially mm-hmm. if you're living in the household. And what I, I always say is the first step is to gather more information, to, to mm-hmm. get educated, to reach out to a professional, just to have a consultation and an assessment, um, yeah. to come up with a plan how to move forward. And now that's not necessarily always a formal intervention. There's a lot of other pathways to change, um, you know, through getting your own coaching um, as a family member, through, you know, exploring different, you know, treatment options that are out there. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, you know, in a situation where, uh, you know, a formal intervention is indicated, getting information about that. There's so much misinformation in the general public about intervention right now that there's many different types, for example, many different types of modalities um, and approaches And just to simplify that, um, you know, to to answer your question most directly is to, I completely agree with you uh, to reach out for for some kind of help with a professional to to get educated on the various pathways forward. Um, And in specifics to an intervention, there's different types. And and when I'm doing a consultation with a family, um, there's the traditional, um, you know, the family works and does preparation to have this, this conversation, which is a really mm-hmm. critical conversation to have. And um, there's the traditional surprise model, which you know a lot of people are familiar with, that the person is unaware that that meeting is going to happen. And then where a lot of people aren't really um, up to speed and know about is the invitational uh, model where um, everybody in the family is aware that they're going to have a professional come in to talk about what's going on in the family and design a plan for everybody to move forward. Um, you know, the, the days of kind of beating up on someone and saying, you have a problem, you must admit it, get help, I haven't seen that to be the most effective approach for the long-term change that so many people are hoping for. Um, uh-huh. What I've seen is that everybody in the family being willing to make changes um, mm-hmm. for the whole family to move forward, or um, in the case of a company or something like that, everybody willing to do their part to, to support change in a positive way um, is a, an effective approach, especially long term. Um, and that's a lot less aggressive because a lot of people get nervous just in general mm-hmm. with the word intervention. They think it's going to be some like hostage negotiation, and yeah, that's not always the case. And a lot of times there are crises and I do do that um, crisis intervention where the goal is to get someone into the appropriate care as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And, but there's a lot of listeners I imagine that are their family member or themselves, they're in what's that gray area. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we diagnose substance use disorders on a continuum now, um, from Mm -hmm. mild all the way to severe. And when I entered, um, recovery myself, I was probably on the mild end of the spectrum. Um, And I feel grateful that I was able to explore something different and make the change early because I have the life I have now. And that's where to circle back to the whole concept, the theme of our discussion on waiting for rock bottom is waiting to to live your life in a healthy way. It sounds crazy to me um, when, you know, your whole trajectory can change um, from taking action sooner. And all the evidence and research that I've read and studied over the years is the sooner a family, or professional intervene, the better the outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm I'm conservative and and saying yes, it's time to 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 do something rather than um, just hope it changes and 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 wait around.
1: Oh, I agree. Taking action is is is. You know the only way, really. But it's very interesting that you. I, I'm. I'm so. I'm so happy to hear that there is a type of intervention which sounds like more like a community approach, um, where you know even like you said, if it's friends or work, work, uh, colleagues or family members that everybody is kind of owning responsibility. And I and I always just feel like that's even if it's just something mild that they that they could say they'll do, it just allows everybody to kind of come together and relate to one another, which helps that person who's struggling too that they're not, you know, shamed into a corner or no one else, you know, no one else will do anything and and everything's on them. So that's fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about, I mean, I know that, um, you have 50 methods that you, that you uh, to address, you know, any behavioral problem, including the unhealthy habits and addictions, but let's talk about your, your, um, your, your business and your company, San Francisco intervention and its services. Cause you know, I, 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 I'm so happy that you're out there doing this because it's so it's so rare to be able to find somebody that I know is um, is is helping in so many different ways and has not only been trained in so many modalities but is also experienced in recovery himself. So, tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about your company.
0: Yeah, thank you. I I, I feel really fortunate. Um, I got into recovery. You know, like I said, I was 21, and then. Um, when I was 25, um, I, uh, through a series of events, I I was teaching music lessons to kids um, when I first got out of grad school, Um, and I went to school for for music, um, and I was teaching lessons to kids, and a mom gave me um, the book Emotional Intelligence, and she was just kind of watching how I was interacting with her daughter, and she says, Stephen, you got a gift for working with people, And, and so she's like, I want you to have this book, and I was reading this book, and um, I was outside of a coffee shop down here in uh, Palo Alto, California, and this woman wr- walked by and said, "Hey, you gotta go meet David Burns." And interrupted me and said, "You gotta meet him." Six months later, I um, was at a workshop, uh, met a psychologist randomly at a, a gym that I go to, and he said, "Give me your email. I want you to come to this workshop." And ended up going to um, see, uh, David Burns, uh, Dr. David Burns' uh, training up in San Francisco. And that's where I learned um, he has over 50 different methods, cognitive behavioral therapy methods, to address um, anxiety, depression, relationship problems, and habits and addictions. And then the rest is kind of history. I got into a training group um, at Stanford with him and was uh, learning these methods and learning everything I could on, you know, substance abuse, substance use disorders, and um, taking time to assemble all that because I, I knew that there was such a need out there. And, um, you know, especially for, uh, other approaches than, you know, traditional treatment as usual, as for many people that have tried that and haven't been successful and are feeling kind of discouraged and wanting, you know, other options. And so San Francisco intervention became came alive when I, I moved to San Francisco, uh, last year and I took everything that I had learned and put it into, um, the different services that I offer and, um... I can spell some of those out. One is the assessments uh, coming in, mm-hmm. just to get more information, um, learn about the the problems that are going on, and have a recommendation on how best to move forward. Um, whether mm-hmm. that's working with me or someone else that has the skills and training to, you know, move that person forward. So you can um, refer. Another, yeah, and mm-hmm. referring that person to the appropriate um, level of care yeah. and provider.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so many people feel lost on where to start, and there's so much information and can get kind of anxiety provoking just typing things into google these days um and then uh the other services is doing coaching um which i really enjoy doing for those that are motivated and you know really wanting change and kind of feel maybe stuck in their recovery they might have been in recovery for a little while or they're really wanting to get into it and that's when using these 50 methods um are really effective for some people that, you know, they might have some anxiety or relationship challenges or other habits that they have picked up and want to address those. And then of course um, intervention, um, which uh, when someone's resistant to getting help, coaching um, the family members, loved ones or support team um, around them to uh, intervene in a skillful way to influence the likelihood of positive change. And that's a joy to do those as well. And then I took some time, um, this is kind of answering the thing with the invitational approach, which some people might not be familiar with, to build out um, recovery uh, workshops that are really educational in the sense that they cover the various, you know, challenges that I've seen um, for so many people that are struggling with a habit or addiction that they want to overcome and so, a lot of people don't understand. Like, how do people change? How do you harness motivation to live this lifestyle? How does shame? How does shame impact, um, you know, addiction? How does mm-hmm. you know blame and communication within, you know, relationship a- affect um, re- um, the um, the problems with um, unhealthy habits? And then how how does, uh, once you get into um, recovery, how do you maintain that? And uh, what, yeah. you know, traditionally is called relapse prevention. Um, how do you, how do you make it so you can stay in and continue to live a healthy, thriving lifestyle? And assembling all that to give uh, families and, and individuals that information is really, really empowering. Um, yeah. And it's kind of nice for the family and for the individuals to outsource that to a professional rather than I imagine there's a lot of listeners that have been trying to be like what I would call a case manager, try to fix their, their loved one and watch over them and monitor them. And that in itself can just be incredibly stressful. And mm-hmm. outsourcing that to a professional um, is often what makes the difference there. And that's what these workshops are all about um, in that piece. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's kind of an overview of the different Absolutely. things that I've put that's... together.
1: That's so fantastic. that's so great. And you know it's funny a lot of serendipitous things have happened to you the way we met, I think is very serendipitous too and I feel like you know when you're you're kind of meant to do something in life you you the universe brings you the things that you need it's it's very interesting. so thank you for uh-huh. sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. so um I just wanted to just quickly just discuss um, that the aftercare bit of, of just how important it is to kind of continue on this journey, whether or not you have gone through an inpatient for just 30 days or 90 days or 60 days, and you've done out, outpatient, whatever it is, this is a continuous journey that I know you understand. And I know many people in recovery understand. But, you know, I think that understanding that we have to kind of feed our mind, body and spirit as we go along in different ways and staying open minded and open hearted to all these different plethora of different things that we could do to continue to heal and continue to explore, um, our narratives and our, our agreements and, and the messages that we receive in our, in our past. And also that we receive every single day as we're going through life. Um, can you, can you tell me of how you've, you've kept yourself doing that and, and any, any kind of, um, advice you have to people that are out there that are maybe like in, in a year of their sobriety and a little stuck or whatever it is, wherever they're out in their journey.
0: Yeah. Um, the first thing I'll put out is, you know, living um, a recovery lifestyle has many, many fruits and rewards, but there are also, you know, times that are it's challenging and requires discipline and um, resisting, you know, certain temptations and being faced with choices along the way. And, um, you know, it's not all just like a bed of roses and like nirvana being, you know, in recovery all the time, but the, 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 the fruits of, you know, Living this lifestyle, um, you know, I love the one day at a time concept, you know, planning, mm-hmm. making things in manageable segments, of, you know, what I'm going to do each day and kind of having that discipline. It does add up. And looking back, I'm, I'm grateful for the, the life I have today in that regard. But more specifically, to answer your question of, you know, what kind of things uh, are available for people to do that are, you know, they celebrated a year of recovery or they're further down and uh, wanting more, um, I think what, I, what, I, what, I, what comes to mind is how the Surgeon General um, in this country just put out a report last year on um, the addiction crisis, um, mm-hmm. and I'd encourage everyone to look that up. It's a 400-page document that goes into substance use disorders and how it's impacting the United States, and then also, and I think of Chapter 4 or 5, talking about many pathways to recovery, and mm-hmm. I find that really exciting that um, there's so many uh, things out there. And my kind of philosophy is there's a buffet of options mm-hmm. um, to wellness and, and living a healthy lifestyle. And not every item on the buffet everyone's going to like. You know, some dishes, mm-hmm. one person will like the other dishes, they wouldn't want it at all. And that's great. I, I think the main thing is just as long as you're eating. You know, you're just like if you're just mm-hmm. walking around the buffet, just looking at it all then you probably will starve and that's, that's kind of a, an issue. But as long as you're eating something off the buffet, um, you know, that, that's, that's where I think you're in the game. Um, so some of these buffet items or menu of items are, you know, I really am a believer in mindfulness practice. There's a lot of mm-hmm. ways, especially that's kind of getting really popular in, in the U S right now is mindfulness practices, meditation, uh, mm-hmm. yoga practices, um, you know, to calm the mind, um, resist temptations. There's so many of those things available. Um, you know, reading, uh, they found, um, just what we call bibliotherapy. Um, and this is on the resources page of my website, uh, sfintervention.com. There's a lot of helpful books, including, uh, I want to put a plug for rewired. That's a great book reading that book.
1: Um,
0: my mentor, David Burns wrote the book feeling good, which put him on the map, you know, in the 1980s. And they did a study just reading that book, um, you know, elevated um or reduced the depression scores that people were having and just from reading that and i found like you know picking up a book and reading is good and then Mm -hmm. getting a a list of new hobbies and activities things that have been on the back burner like you know there's so many you know options of things to do for people that are you know no longer abusing substances or you know struggling with a mental health disorder you know getting involved in volunteer work um you know, the list goes on and on of different yeah. things that can bring fulfillment. And another big plug is, for me, I've found, you know, building in rewarding activities that, that um, you know, having things that bring joy and wellness, such as, you know, and for some people this might sound like a turnoff, but I find um, exercise to be a real effective way, going outside, getting some sun, getting some exercise. Um, and, you know, one of my big things is I, I like to, to sit um, in, in a warm bath or a hot tub to, to, to relax. And I put this out on the education section of my website of what are some good coping, healthy strategies, um, Mm -hmm. versus the ones that kind of, you know, might be immediately like smoking a cigarette or something like that, or, or, or Mm -hmm. these other shopping or things that kind Mm -hmm. of feel good Mm -hmm. for a little bit, but ultimately don't take us down the path we want to go. And, um, that's been really effective too. And, um, you know, it's kind of exciting that you don't have to do all of it at once, but just picking a few things each day, you know, yeah, um, mm-hmm. can be helpful.
1: Yeah, you're your your the the list you just uh, just 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 said the coping skills is is exactly what I do too, <laughs> literally. Mm-hmm. The exercise, the bath. Uh, you know, music, being quiet, cooking, you know, uh, visiting friends or neighborhoods, you know, there's just, there's so much, there's so much. And I, I appreciate you saying that. And it does take time to kind of build that muscle of mindfulness to just say, hey, I'm not going to go for the cigarette, or I'm not going to go for buying something else online or eating uh, 10 cookies, you know, let let me think about this and think about some ways which I could think about my future self and, and be compassionate to my future self, because I know that I'm not going to be happy if I smoke that cigarette or eat 10, you know, 10, 10, cookies. So it's, it is just a way of, of thinking. And, um, I appreciate you sharing that. Steven, let's just give our audience, uh, the best way to get a hold of you really quick. And, uh, thank you so much for coming on.
0: Okay. That's fine. There's, um, they can, uh, people that want to reach out, um, can go to sfintervention.com and there's a contact page there. And then there's also um, the best way is to contact the 1-800 number, which is 1-800-868-6173.
1: Okay, fantastic. And we'll we'll have all your information available um, under, under your name and under this interview. So thank you so much for coming on with me today. You're listening to Rewired Radio on Radio MD. I'm Erica Spiegelman. Thank you all for joining us today, and stay well.